This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. For more books from Gary North that are free and downloadable on PDF format, please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks. The title of this book is Millennialism and Social Theory, published by Institute for Christian Economics, copyright Gary North, 1990. Chapter 6, Time Enough. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Luke 17:27. What is the nature of historical change? It is a combination of institutional continuity and discontinuity. Long periods of normality are interspersed with revolutionary events that transform institutions and manners. Deuteronomy 28.53-57 In the days of Noah, Jesus said, people married and were given in marriage. These familiar events went on for centuries. People assumed that these events were normal and normative. Then, in a period of forty days, everything ended. No one had suspected this except Noah and his family. This was historical discontinuity. A Bible-based definition of historical discontinuity is this an unprecedented period of God's culture-wide sanctions in which the institutions of a covenant-breaking society are displaced through war, famine, or plague, negative, and or voluntary reform, positive. In the midst of such a major discontinuity, we always find the continuity of God's covenant promises to his people, embodied in all of those covenant keepers who survive and then build society anew. They displace covenant breakers and their ways. Noah is the premier example of this covenantal process in man's history. The flood's comprehensive discontinuity was the potential basis of comprehensive reconstruction by covenant keepers and their heirs. The flood was a means of spiritual and cultural liberation for covenant keepers. The Noahic flood is the archetype of physical discontinuities in history an event not to be matched again until the final judgment. It serves as the model for lesser physical and social events, as Jesus' statement reveals. Babylon is fallen. Another example from Scripture is the judgment against Babylon. On that last night, the king and his high officials had a feast. They brought out the gold and silver implements of the temple, stolen a generation earlier by Nebuchadnezzar. Then they ate from these holy implements in what was a satanic communion meal. That finished Babylon. God's negative corporate sanctions were imposed that night. The discontinuity for Judah had been her captivity, and the sign of God's providential administration of that discontinuity was the sacking of his temple. But the time of involuntary captivity for Israel was about to end. The restoring of Israel was imminent. Babylon's total discontinuity was at hand to be administered by Medo-Persia. The handwriting was on the wall for Babylon, literally. In that final night's festivities, King King Belshazzar had sought an explanation of the miracle of the hand's writing. He, like Nebuchadnezzar before him, called in Daniel to interpret. Daniel did, telling him it was the end of the road for Babylon in history. Rather than rejecting this negative news and punishing Daniel, the king initiated a covenantal transfer of civil authority to Daniel. Perhaps he did this hoping to gain the favor of God, but it was too late for halfway political measures. 
Something far more fundamental than politics was at stake. Then commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet, and put a chain of gold about his neck, and made a proclamation concerning him, that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. In that night was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans slain. Daniel 5.29.6.1 Daniel became the covenantal link between the Chaldean Empire and the Medo-Persian Empire. Once again he became the counselor of the king. Daniel, because he was God's man, provided the covenantal continuity between the two empires. Under Darius, and later under Cyrus, the Israelites were allowed to return to their land. The discontinuity of Babylon's fall became the historical foundation of restored geographical continuity for Israel. It was a permanent discontinuity for Babylon, but a means of restoration for Israel. The discontinuity of Babylon's fall was for the sake of covenant-keeping Israel. It furthered the continuity of God's earthly kingdom. This is true of every discontinuity in history. This is how we are supposed to interpret the God-imposed discontinuities of history. These discontinuities are not permanent in the expansion of God's earthly kingdom. Instead, they are permanent in God's thwarting of each of the rival earthly kingdoms. God does not impose sanctions for the purpose of shortening the time perspective of Christians. He imposes them to shorten the time perspective of non-Christians. God's historical sanctions are to remind covenant keepers and covenant breakers of Satan's short time frame. Quote, Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea! For the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. End quote. Revelation 12.12 12. This is the biblical view of historical discontinuities. But what of the promised future discontinuity of the bodily return of Jesus Christ? Here is where the debate begins. The Sign of His Coming Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, This generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Matthew twenty-four thirty-two to 39 the premillennialist looks to the future for a literal fulfillment of this prophecy. He connects Jesus' words with the premillennial advent of Christ to set up his kingdom on earth. The postmillennial or amillennial preterist, past tense, interpretation looks backward to the fall of Jerusalem. After all, Jesus' words were clear. This generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Verse 34. He was, therefore, using symbolic, apocalyptic language in order to describe the greatest covenantally significant physical discontinuity intervening between his ascension to heaven and the final judgment, the destruction of the old order, the Israelite kingdom. This, too, was a fulfillment of prophecy. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Matthew 21.43 
Clearly, Jesus was drawing an analogy between the flood and Israel's coming discontinuity. Before the flood, things went on as always. Then the monumental change took place. There were similar discontinuities in biblical history. Pharaoh, for example, paid no attention to the shepherd from Midian and his resident alien brother. Then came nine plagues. These disturbed him briefly, but not permanently. Then came the tenth plague, followed by the exodus and the destruction of Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. But Israel was delivered. The Red Sea was not an agency of discontinuity for Israel. There is continuity and there are also discontinuities. People usually expect the world around them to continue as before. This is especially true of those in rebellion against God. Quote, Come ye, say they, I will fetch wine, and we will fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow shall be as this day, and much more abundant. End quote. Isaiah 56.12 Man's dream of perpetual moral rebellion, coupled with ever-expanding personal pr- prosperity, is not exclusively a modern vision. It was this same confidence in the future that kept Noah's generation from taking appropriate defensive moral measures. Positive Sanctions I have concentrated on God's negative sanctions in history. So does the Bible. It does not record any instances of God's positive corporate sanctions apart from parallel negative sanctions. The case of Nineveh is unique. The mere threat of near near the, the mere threat of near-term sanctions produced a righteous public response. The deliverance of Israel from Egypt cannot be understood apart from a discussion of God's judgments against Egypt. Similarly, the blessings given to Joshua's generation cannot be understood without reference to the Israelites' displacement of Canaan's cultures. As I said in the introduction, the Old Testament emphasizes institutional transformation in the presentation of the Bible's basic theme, the transition from wrath to grace. While there are a few Old Covenant instances of God's willingness to delay his negative sanctions because of the conversion of a king and his people's willingness to allow him to make some public institutional changes, Josiah is an example, 2 Kings 22-23, the hearts of the people never changed apart from God's imposition of culture-wide negative sanctions. The occasional top-down formal changes in Israel's institutional arrangements did not last long. Under Elijah, the representatives of the people slew the false priests, but their hearts had not changed. Jezebel still reigned and Elijah had to flee in the wilderness again, Second Kings 18. The permanent cultural displacement of covenant breakers under the Old Covenant was always violent. In the New Testament, God's establishment of the church changed the lives of those who were converted, but it did not change the social institutions of Israel. This did not happen until the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, a generation later. The same can be said for the centuries-long conquest of Rome's culture by Christians. This did not take place until after a series of disasters had fallen on Rome. Wars, confiscatory taxes, inflation, and Constantine's victory, followed by tribal invasions in the West that continued for centuries. The New Testament's emphasis is on personal regeneration, not institutional. The emphasis is on progressive sanctification over time, not revolutionary displacement. The progressive sanctification of individuals is to produce the progressive sanctification of institutions. Christ's Christians are to be salt of the, to the world. Still, this does not deny the life-and-death nature of the struggle. Jesus warned, 
Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Matthew 5.13 It is either them or us. Salt is used on God's fiery altar as a permanent sign of destruction. Quote, for everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. End quote. Mark 9.49 Salt was used in ancient world to pollute a newly defeated city's land so that it would no longer grow crops. Quote, and Abimelech fought against the city all that day, and he took the city and slew the people that were therein, and beat down the city and sowed it with salt. Judges 9.45 Salt is more than savor. Salt is a means of destruction. Christians are to destroy the enemy's city, civilization, through normally though normally through voluntary conversions and progressive long-term cultural displacement. Continuity, not discontinuity, is the institutional task of New Covenant social reform. On the one hand, it is not the task of the reformers to impose discontinuous corporate negative sanctions, except in the case of war or legitimate resistance by lower magistrates to domestic national tyranny, the Calvinist doctrine of interposition. On the other hand, Apart from God's widespread negative corporate sanctions, there have been few, if any, known cases of permanent Christian social transformation. Christianity's positive sanctions in New Covenant history tend to be continuous rather than discontinuous. Even in the rare cases of mass revival, discontinuous positive moves by the Holy Spirit, these events have virtually never been followed by widespread cultural transformation, i.e. cultural continuity. God's enemies have inherited. The reasons why mass revivals have not been accompanied by 1. God's comprehensive negative sanctions or by 2. a comprehensive reform of civil law. Note, I am speaking here of history, not prophesying. The Protestant Reformation is an example of institutional transformation, but one reason why it succeeded was that the Turks were almost at the gates of Vienna, the Pope and the Emperor had other pressing concerns besides Luther and Calvin. Also, it led to the Thirty Years' War, 1618-48, to and the resolution of that war was the establishment of Erastianism. The king's religion became the religion of the people. This was hardly a long-term cultural solution. The humanists inherited. Covenantal Displacement The process of covenantal displacement is a war over cultural and judicial standards. It is a war over law. It is therefore a war to determine the God of the culture. For the source of law in any culture is its God. The enemies of God very seldom surrender peacefully. They correctly perceive that they are fighting to the death covenantally, both personally and institutionally. This is what the Bible teaches. Either the old Adam dies spiritually through the new birth in history, or else God will publicly execute him eternally on judgment day. Covenant breakers clearly perceive the life and death nature of the struggle for civilization. Covenant keepers seldom do. Christians prefer religious and political pluralism, pluralism to covenantal Christian reconstruction. They almost always have. Because Christians do not fully understand the covenantal implications of the faith, and also because Christ churches drift into apostasy, Christianity steadily gives up ground to the enemy. It spreads westward, but as it moves forward, it surrenders its rear flanks. 
The history of Christianity can be seen on a globe of the world. It would appear on the globe as a shadow about 2,000 miles wide. As it moves north or west, it surrenders in the south and east. Arab Muslims took North Africa and Spain on Europe's southern flank, while Irish missionaries were spreading the gospel in northern Europe, 632 to 732. Turkish Muslims took Byzantium, 1453, just before Western Christianity crossed the Atlantic. Enlightenment paganism took Europe while Protestant Christianity was spreading westward in North America. The only major exceptions in history have been Catholicism's reconquest of Spain, 732 to 1492, and the Greek Revolt, 1822, 1821 to 22. We do not see God's positive historical discontinuities apart from his negative discontinuities against those being displaced. Nevertheless, the program of the church is peaceful, positive displacement, soul by soul. God wins, Satan loses, soul by soul. Who brings the necessary negative corporate sanctions? God does, not through the church, but through such means as pestilence, plague, and war. The church is supposed to pray for God's negative discontinuities in history against entrenched corporate evil. This is why God gave us his imprecatory psalms to sing and pray publicly in the church, e.g. Psalm 83. Here is the biblical program for cultural transformation. First, the church is to bring continuous positive sanctions into a covenant-breaking culture. Preaching, the sacraments, charity, and the disciplining of its members, a negative sanction by the church but positive for society. It keeps other Christians more honest. Second, the Holy Spirit must bring positive discontinuities into individual lives, conversion. This is at his discretion, not ours. Third, a sovereign God in heaven must bring his discontinuous corporate negative sanctions against covenant breakers in history. Notice, above all, that it is God who brings negative corporate sanctions in society, not the church. The church is an exclusively positive agent in society. I stress this because of the continuing misinterpretation of our position on social change by critics, both Christian and pagan. While these misrepresentations will continue, the reader has now been provided with an immunization shot. This interpretive framework for biblical social transformation, if correct, militates against ecclesiocracy, the fusion of church and state. If the church is to bring exclusively positive sanctions in society rather than negative, and if the state is supposed to bring primarily negative sanctions, then church and state are inherently separate institutions. They have two separate functions, covenantally, and therefore two separate systems of sanctions. Again, the critics have systematically misrepresented our position on this point. I want to make our position clear. Another implication is the denial of salvation by law. Men cannot work their way into heaven. There can be no valid program of personal salvation that is based on the continuity of fallen man's labors. The Holy Spirit's discontinuous intervention into history alone can save men's souls. We are saved exclusively by grace. This means that personal regeneration is initiated from outside of history into history. This perspective is a denial of the messianic state and the social gospel movement. It is also a denial of liberation theology. There can be no positive continuity-based institutional program that guarantees God's grant of salvation to fallen men. Special grace is discontinuous.
Common grace, while continuous, is strictly a temporary grant of external healing to men and institutions. It is the equivalent of medical care in a hospice filled with terminal patients. It is a kindness unto death. We have yet to see in history a case of the cultural displacement of covenant breakers apart from the widespread imposition of God's corporate negative sanctions. Christians refuse to recognize this. They seek continuity, the temporary ceasefire of pluralism. Covenant breakers then use their civil authority to increase the persecution of Christians, who then conclude that Jesus is coming soon. The alliance continues, the power religion and the escape religion. What is the nature of this alliance? The power religionists want to keep Christians gazing hopefully up, up at heaven, looking for their physical deliverance from beyond history, which the humanists regard as mythical but extremely useful for purposes of social control. The promotion of a similar skyward strategy of non-historical deliverance worked so well for the Old South's slave owners and their control of their Christian slaves that the humanists have mimicked it. So have their targeted slaves. The leaders of modern Protestantism's pietistic escape religion, like the black trustees of the Old South's plantation system, want to keep their subordinates firmly in place under their authority, not getting involved in areas of life unfamiliar to or beyond the abilities of those presently occupying the pulpits. They can use every invasion of liberty by the power religionists as proof of the imminent return of Christ. Look up. In the same way that sadists need masochists and vice versa, so do humanists and pessimillennialists need and use each other. While premillennialists are the primary offenders in this regard, we must not ignore Dutch amillennialist contributions. Dr. W. H. Vellema of Holland has certainly done his part to keep Christians looking skyward. He is reported by the Christian press of the Netherlands to have said, quote, The idea of the cultural mandate as a comprehensive system is, today, in view of the environmental crisis, no longer tenable, unquote. Because of the well-orchestrated, media-fanned, and barely scientifically defendable ecological crisis, Dr. Vellema is willing to scrap all plans for exercising a cultural mandate in, his, in history. His eschatological pessimism has overwhelmed his theology of culture. Quote, With our cultural mandate, we remain aliens in this world, that we must more often pray, Come, Lord Jesus, come. End quote. Christians were told to look skyward prior to the fall of Jerusalem, a covenantal, not a cosmic, discontinuity. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. Luke 21.28 But their deliverance came in history. Luke 21 is the chapter that predicts the surrounding of Jerusalem by the Roman army in A.D. 70. And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let not them that are in the countries enter thereinto. Verses 20 to 21. That one time deliverance of the early church is today long behind us. It is surely time for Christians to begin looking forward in time and earth for their deliverance, not upward. Why continuity? Men must look to the future and build for the future. They need to work out their vision of life over time. Philippians 2.12 If the world were a series of unpredictable events, we could not plan for the future. 
Without historical continuity, we would perish. So God gives mankind, and even the devil and his angels, the common grace, i.e. an unearned, undeserved gift, of time. For the covenant keeper, time is one of his God-given means for building up his eternal treasure. God's common grace to him in history becomes a means of special grace in eternity. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's, God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. 1 Corinthians 3, 9-15 For the covenant-breaker, in contrast, time is one of his God-given means for building up his eternal torment. God's common grace to him in history becomes a special curse in eternity. But and if that servant say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and he shall begin to beat the men servants and maidens, and to eat and drink, and to be drunken. The Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and he will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant which knew his Lord's will, and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not, and did commit things worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. I am come to send fire on the earth, and what will I if it be already kindled? Luke twelve forty-five to 49 Notice a very important fact, one that will become central in the next chapter. There is continuity between this life and the afterlife. Covenant keepers and covenant breakers will all receive their appropriate eternal rewards and punishments. This covenantal fact affirms the importance of history. God's guarantee of future permanent sanctions is supposed to change the way we believe and live on earth. We do not live apart from institutions. God, in His grace, grants increasing cultural authority to us as we progressively conform ourselves to His Word. Positive Sanctions in History As this extension of authority takes place, we must steadily reform our institutions. From those to whom much is given, much is required. Luke 12:47-48. This is the reason why pessimillennialists, especially fundamentalists, strongly resist the very suggestion of such an extension of authority in history. They do not want this added responsibility. Biblical Rhetoric Sometimes, in order to get an idea across, and to make it stick in people's minds, a writer has to make the same point by saying it several different ways. Sometimes he puts his statement in italics. He does whatever he can to make his point, because he knows that memories are weak and hostile prejudices are strong. This is the art of rhetoric. Rhetoric is biblical. While he did not use italics, Paul adopted a similar technique. Then he even told his readers that he had adopted it. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. 
Galatians 6.11 Following Paul's lead, I will say it again in a different way and even tell you what I am doing. The ethical continuities of history, both personal and cultural, are confirmed by the judicial and cosmic discontinuity that ends history. God's judgments are coming, both temporal and final. This is not a denial of historical continuity. This is an absolute affirmation of historical continuity. God announced this affirmation in the second of his Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I the Lord thy God am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Exodus 20, 5-6 Mercy unto thousands, not thousands of people, there have been more of us than that, but thousands of generations. A symbolic reference, I presume, given a minimum figure of 2,000 generations plus, plural, times at least 30 years in a generation, which equals 60,000 years. Bible commentators, both Jewish and Christian, have interpreted this reference as thousands of generations, meaning wholeness, not literal generations. They cite Deuteronomy 7 as proof. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people. For ye were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen, from the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him, and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, and repayeth them that hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hateth him. He will repay him to his face. Thou shalt therefore keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I command thee this day to do them. Deuteronomy 7, 7-11 At this point, dispensational commentators will affirm their occasional commitment to symbolism in biblical interpretation. Waiting another 56,600 years for the rapture, 60,000 minus 3,400 equals 56,000, is a bit too much for them to handle. What is my point? Simple. The Bible sometimes uses symbolic language as a rhetorical means of driving home an important theological point. So can we. But we must do this fairly and honestly. This ethical requirement is not always honored. Reconstructionist Rhetoric I come now to a consideration of a recent debate over biblical interpretation that the Bible does use symbolic language in order to emphasize important truths was a point made by David Chiltern and made rhetorically when he spoke of the supposed 36,600-year millennial era. Not a literal 36,600 years, but rather the Bible's use of symbolic language to describe God's long-suffering patience with rebellious mankind and his blessings to covenant keepers. Chilton was quite clear, quote, Similarly, the thousand years of Revelation 20 represent a vast, undefined period of time, end quote. He cited Milton Terry, the respected commentator and master of biblical hermeneutics, quote, It may require a million years, end quote. This means simply that the designation of 1,000 years must not be taken exclusively in a literal sense. In Paradise Restored, citing Deuteronomy 7.9, Chilton writes of a long era of millennial blessings. Quote, the God of the covenant told his people that he would bless them to the thousandth generation of their descendants. 
That promise was made in round figures about 3,400 years ago. If we figure the biblical generation at about 40 years, a thousand generations is 40,000 years. We've got 36,600 years to go before this promise is fulfilled. End quote. Then, to make his point, Chilton's next paragraph spelled out his position on the use of the number 1,000. Quote, when God said that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, he means a vast number of cattle on a vast number of hills. But there are more than 1,000 hills. The Bible promises that God's people will be kings and priests for a thousand years, meaning a vast number of years. But Christians have been kings and priests for more than 1,000 years, almost 2,000 years now. My point is this. The term thousand is often used symbolically in Scripture to express vastness. But that vastness is in reality much more than the literal thousand. End quote. Chilton's book is a model of rhetoric. He goes straight to the heart of his opponents' arguments in a few memorable words. You will not soon forget this highly rhetorical delivery. The saying, quote, Never answer a question with a question, end quote, is a favorite of those who lose all their arguments. Jesus answered a loaded question with an even more loaded question, and so devastated were his questioners that they never again asked him another question. Matthew twenty-two forty-one to 46 Chilton says that Psalm 50 speaks of God's ownership of the cattle on a thousand hills. Is this a literal number, limiting God? No. God owns all the cattle on all the hills. He asks a classical, classic rhetorical question. Does hill number 1001 belong to someone else? The self-professed hermeneutically literalist should now begin to feel the noose tightening around his neck. Then Chilton pulls the lever on the trap door. Quote, In the same way, particularly with regard to a highly symbolic book, we should see that the thousand years of Revelation 20 represent a vast, undefined period of time. It has already lasted almost 2,000 years and will probably go on for many more. Exactly how many years, someone asked me. I'll be happy to tell you, I cheerfully replied, as soon as you tell me exactly how many hills are in Psalm 50. End quote. Snap! There went dispensationalism's forced literalism of Revelation 20. The lifeless body is twisting slowly, slowly in the wind. He ended his discussion with this forthright, forthright statement. Quote, I am not interested in setting dates. I am not going to try to figure out the date of the second coming. The Bible does not reveal it, and it is none of our business. What the Bible does reveal is our responsibility to work for God's kingdom, our duty to bring ourselves, our families, and all of our spheres of influence under the dominion of Jesus Christ. End quote. David Chilton is not a date-setter. He made this inescapably clear, too clear for some. Chilton's rhetoric is so clear that his dispensational critics have felt morally compelled to self-consciously distort his words and then attack their deliberate distortion. When doing Jesus' work, one apparently is under grace, not law, especially this law. Quote, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Exodus twenty sixteen. Pop Dispensationalist Rhetoric Chilton's discussion has been deliberately misquoted and then ridiculed in print by such best-selling dispensational authors as Dave Hunt and Hell Lindsay. Dave Hunt sneers, quote, It seems the height of folly to be looking for Christ when we know, according to Reconstructionist writer David Chilton, for example, that he cannot come for at least 
36,000 years, end quote. Cannot come? Where did Chilton say this? He didn't, but for Hunt to admit this would reduce the impact of his rhetoric. Hunt has a moral problem. Christian's rhetoric is supposed to emphasize the truth for the benefit of the listener or reader, not to convey deliberate falsehoods. Hunt did not honor this fundamental biblical principle of rhetoric in dealing with Chilton's careful, cogent, and fully explained interpretation of the duration of the millennial era. He prefers rhetoric to the truth. An appropriate biblical response to Mr. Hunt is Nehemiah's reply to Sanballat. There are no such things done as thou sayest, but thou feignest them out of thine own heart. Nehemiah 6.8b It is also appropriate for Hal Lindsay's similar discussion. Lindsay quotes Chilton's statement of 40,000 years and Terry's million years, but skips the explanation of the symbolic usage of 1,000 in the Bible. He also fails to mention or respond to Chilton's devastating use of the cattle on a thousand hills. He then says that this kind of teaching makes the Reconstructionists, quote, so earthly-minded that they are no heavenly good, end quote. He insists that Reconstructionists, quote, often seem to be more interested in political takeover than evangelizing and discipling people for a spiritual kingdom, end quote. This, despite Chilton's explicit statement in the chapter in Days of Vengeance that Lindsay relies on to attack him. Chilton states as clearly and emphatically as possible that politics is not primary. Quote, it must be stressed, however, that the road to dominion does not lie primarily through political action. While the political sphere, like every other aspect of life, is a valid and necessary area of Christian activity and eventually dominance, we must shun the perennial temptation to grasp for political power. Dominion in civil government cannot be obtained before we have attained maturity and wisdom, the result of generations of Christian self-government. According to Chilton, how long will it take for Christians conceivably to be ready to exercise widespread political leadership as a self-conscious organized group? Generations. Christian self-government first, he insists, then politics. He could not have made it any plainer. This has always been the view of the Christian Reconstructionists. But neither Hal Lindsey nor the myriads of other dispensational critics who attack Reconstructionism are willing to take our word seriously, no matter how many times we repeat ourselves. Our words simply do not register with them. They are beyond the Bible. I suppose it should not surprise me that they are beyond our rhetoric. They see the word dominion, and just like the political humanists, they automatically think politics. Like the Jews of Jesus' day, these men are judicially blinded. Quote, seeing, they see not, and hearing, they hear not. Neither do they understand. End quote, Matthew 13, 13b. They apparently in, incapable of comprehending what they read. I am here assuming that they actually do read our books, which is probably naive. So they announce this grotesque misrepresentation to their followers. Quote, Dominionists believe that the church must politically conquer the world. End quote. Do they have a moment's twinge of conscience? Not that I can detect. Lindsay allowed The Road to Holocaust to be reprinted in paperback without bothering to correct even the incorrect names, e.g. his John Rusas Rushduni instead of Rusas John Rushduni, and other misstatements of fact. It was as if we had not published The Legacy of Hatred Continues just 30 days after The Road to Holocaust appeared. Anything for the cause and their book royalties. Theirs is the sandballot strategy. 
and they wonder why they are losing the battle to half a dozen men with word processors. Reconstructionists deny political salvation. What do we teach? We teach that the gospel of Jesus Christ, whenever empowered by the Holy Spirit, will progressively conquer the hearts and minds of men, and as a result will conquer the cultural world, which includes politics. This is a very different perspective from the wholly perverse idea that the Church of Jesus Christ must use political power in order to conquer the world. But the critics, pessimillennialists, and humanists alike cannot imagine that the gospel possesses this degree of authority and power, even when the Holy Spirit imparts his irresistible saving grace to men. The Calvinists tell us, implicitly, that God has foreordained the historic failure of his gospel. In contrast, the Arminians tell us, explicitly, that the mass of autonomous mankind will never convert to saving faith. How they know this, in a supposedly non-predestined world, is mystery. The humanists tell us that Christianity is false, and therefore it should have no influence in politics or, gen cultural, or culture generally. But they are all agreed. God will never bring the world to the foot of the cross on this side of the second coming of Christ. Reconstructionists say that he will, that his, earthly king, his kingdom's earthly triumph in history is foreordained. This is why Christian Reconstruction is a stumbling stone to everyone. Here is what the debate is really all about, the God-predestined victory of Christ in history, as manifested by a wide acceptance of his covenant law, but not achieved through his bodily presence on a physical throne in Jerusalem. Reconstructionists argue that because God will accomplish this through his irresistible grace, politics is not very important. Our critics deny that God has foreordained his visible kingdom's victory in history, and so they imagine that only politics can serve as a tool sufficient to achieve a theonomic millennium. Denying the sovereignty of God and bringing his kingdom on earth to visible victory, they focus on politics, which they all agree is the ultimate power in history, given the assumption, which they all make, of the cultural impotence of the kingdom of God in history. It makes them ready to surrender to humanism in advance of defeat. Preemptive Surrender What frightens some of the dispensational critics is their fear of persecution. David Allen Lewis warns in his book Prophecy 2000 that, quote, as the secular, humanistic, demonically dominated world system becomes more and more aware that the dominionists and reconstructionists are a real political threat, they will sponsor more and more concerted efforts to destroy the evangelical church. Unnecessary persecution could be stirred up, end quote. In short, because politics is humanistic by nature, any attempt by Christians to speak to political issues as people, or worse, as, as a people, who possess an explicitly biblical agenda will invite unnecessary persecution. We see once again fun dispensational fundamentalism's concept of evangelism as tract-passing, a narrowly defined kingdom program of exclusively personal evangelism that has one primary message to every generation, decade after decade. Flee the imminent wrath to come, whether the Antichrists, the Great Tribulation, or the states, unnecessary persecution. This is a denial of the greatness of the Great Commission, yet all in the name of the Great Commission. Quote, Our vision is to obey and fulfill the command of the Great Commission. End quote. Mr. Lewis says that we can legitimately participate in politics as individuals, 
since our government is democratic. Quote, we encourage Christians to get involved in, on an individual basis in all realms of society, including the political arena. End quote. Should our goal be to change society fundamentally? Hardly. This is an impossible goal. Our goal is to gain new contacts in order to share the gospel with them. Quote, this is partly to ensure that Christians are in place in every strata of society for the purpose of sharing the gospel message. End quote. The purpose of political and social involvement is not to reform the world. It is to tell people about the imminent end of this premillennium world. We are apparently not supposed to say anything explicitly Christian or vote as an organized bloc the way that all other special interest groups expect to gain political influence. Quote, to be involved in our governmental process is desirable. However, it is quite another matter for the church to strive to become Caesar. End quote. Mr. Lewis does not understand politics. One does not get involved in order to lose. One gets involved in order to win. He also does not understand society. One does not make the necessary sacrifices in life that it takes to be successful if one is told that his efforts will not leave anything of significance to the next generation, if in fact there will be a next generation, which is said to be highly doubtful. Mr. Lewis and his pre-tribulational dispensational colleagues have paraphrased homosexual economist John Maynard Keynes's quip, quote, In the long run, we are all dead. Unquote. They say, quote, In the short run, we Christians will all be raptured, and the Jews in Israel will soon wish they were dead, which two-thirds of them will be within seven years after we leave. End quote. This view of the Jews is still taught by the retired 30-year president of Dallas Theological Seminary. Mr. Lewis's position on politics and social involvement is one more example of the long-term operational alliance between the escape religion and the power religion. Both sides are agreed. Christians should not seek office as civil magistrates except as judicially neutral agents. Yet at the same time, all but Liberty University's Norman Geisler, a former Dallas Theological Seminary professor, and the academic political pluralists, e.g. Richard John Newhouse, admit that there is no neutrality. This is schizophrenic. This schizophrenia has left Christians intellectually helpless in the face of an officially neutral, officially pluralistic humanist juggernaut. This has been going on for over three centuries. An Islamic juggernaut might provide a cure. Continuity and Time The two divisive millennial issues are continuity and time. The self-conscious premillennialist denies continuity and shortens time. He forthrightly declares, as Lewis has declared, quote, We are in the final era prior to the coming of Jesus and the establishing of the visible aspect of the kingdom, the millennium. We have no time to waste on wild experimentation with few possible futures and postmillennial pipe dreams. End quote. In comprehensive contrast, the postmillennialist has a much longer time span in mind and he also affirms covenantal continuity in history. He understands the power of compound growth. He believes that obedient Christians can accomplish great things in history, little by little, which is the strategy that the Bible requires. Little by little, he is supposed to prepare himself and his fellow Christians to take advantage of the next major historical discontinuity, when God's latest enemies will be thrown back, broken, snared, and taken. Whom shall he teach knowledge, and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? 
them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people, to whom he said, This is the rest wherewith ye may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. But the word of the Lord was unto them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken, ensnared and taken. Isaiah 28, 9-13 Why discontinuities? The second commandment is clear. God grants four generations to workers of a particular culture's iniquity, and he grants thousands of generations for his covenant people. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Exodus 20:5-6. The covenant keeper, legitimately thinking in terms of many generations, can operate in terms of the principle, slow but sure. He thinks in terms of compound growth, the steady expansion of God's kingdom until it fills the earth. This was the meaning of the dream given to King Nebuchadnezzar by God. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel 2.34-35 God's kingdom will from time to time fall upon the imitation kingdoms of man, as Daniel explained to the king. It will fill the whole earth. The imagery of filling the earth is the imagery of continuity. The imagery of broken kingdoms and scattering is the image of discontinuity. So there will be inevitably discontinuities in history until all societies repent. These discontinuities will break the kingdoms of self-proclaimed autonomous man. Persevering through these historical discontinuities is the growing kingdom of God. One by one, the broken kingdoms of man are replaced in history by God's universal kingdom civilization. The Hare's Strategy To use Aesop's famous metaphor of the race between the tortoise and the hare, the humanist kingdoms must strive for rapid power. They will always be overtaken by the unstoppable tortoise, God's kingdom. Unlike the Christians, who have compound growth working for them, the humanists must bet everything, step by step, in their quest for short-term expansion. They must use borrowed money and borrowed vision in order to gain leverage. It is all or nothing with them. It is winner-take-all. God says that none of them will ever take all. A tiny handful of them will gain something, medium-term. None of them will survive, long-term. The humanist, like the pessimillennialist, is committed to the short strategy of the hare. He believes that his time is short. After me, the deluge. Only those few covenant-breakers who have adopted the Bible's long-range view of kingdom-building, conspirators all, have even begun to imitate the success of God's earthly kingdom. Build the kingdom in history? Impossible, says the premillennialists. Quote, We are here to win souls for the kingdom of God, which is eternal, invisible, 
within us now, but shortly to become visible when Jesus comes back. Time enough, then, under his command to witness his dominion over the nations. End quote. When Jesus returns personally to set up his top-down, international, one-world order bureaucracy, which will be staffed exclusively by Christians, we can then profitably discuss Christian social theory, not until then. Then we will have time enough, not today, and by we is meant someone else. They resent being labeled defeatists in history. They speak of victory, but they do not mean victory in history. What they mean by victory is that God will deliver victory into our hands, but only representatively. He will deliver the world into the hands of those post-rapture converts to Christianity who will, bra- who will reign with Jesus during the millennium. This means brand new converts only. Raptured Christians will not return to earth until after the millennium. Here is a message of complete cultural discontinuity. Those pagans who have gone through the Great Tribulation and who have only recently been converted to saving faith, will be given political power unprecedented in the entire history of mankind. The comparative failure of the gospel and God's church in history will become obvious to everyone forever. Faith in Bureaucratic Power Here is the inescapable social message of all forms of premillennialism, dispensational and historic, but without the sugar-coating. Only a pure power play by God from heaven directly to earth is sufficient to create a Christian civilization. In this sense, the premillennial escape religionists are at heart power religionists. They see the history of civilization only in terms of pure power. One, escaping anti-Christian political power today, thereby abandoning any attempt to build a Christian civilization. But then two, exercising total centralized political power during the millennium. As Dave Hunt says of the coming millennial political rule by the saints, justice will will be meted out swiftly. Power, not ethical continuity, and the accumulated Bible-informed wisdom of the ages, i.e. dispensationalism's designation of the church age, will alone make God's earthly kingdom a success. In his book, A Conflict of Visions, Thomas Sowell makes this observation regarding fundamentalism, which he says is committed to an unconstrained, perfectionist, no trade-offs, view of society. Quote, Fundamentalist religion is the most perverse, pervasive vision of central planning, though many fundamentalists may oppose human central planning as a usurpation or playing God. This is consistent with the fundamentalist vision of an unconstrained God and a highly constrained man. End quote. Soul is co- correct on both counts. What he does not perceive is that the fundamentalist, i.e. premillennialist, defends a constrained vision of society and man today on this side of the millennium because Christ is in heaven and his enemies are on human thrones. On the other hand, during the millennium, Christ will sit on an earthly throne of total power. Then the fundamentalist vision switches to an unconstrained view, totalitarian power with a vengeance, God's vengeance. A Christian bureaucracy will rule the world but this will still be a world in which Christians do not exercise independent authority on their own responsible initiative in terms of God's law. They will simply obey detailed orders handed down from a master bureaucrat, Jesus. This debate is not over bureaucracy. It is over how powerful it should be and who runs it and when. Today, both the humanists and the premillennialists agree. Humanists should run it. But the post-pessimillennial Christians say... 
This should be done fairly, honestly, and above all, neutrally. The humanists then cross their hearts and fingers and swear that they will be neutral. Then, when they start tyrannizing the church and Christian schools, the premillennialists are simply amazed. But you guys promised. Yet they secretly rejoice. This is just additional proof that Jesus is coming soon. Quote, then Jesus gonna whip you. End quote. This is premillennial social theory. Dispensational social theory is even more explicit, at least in its non-academic form. Quote, then Jesus gonna let me whip you. End quote. Comments Reverend Ice. Quote, My blessed hope, however, continues to be that Christ will soon rapture his bride, the church, and that we will return with him in victory to rule and exercise dominion with him for a thousand years upon the earth. Even so, come Lord Jesus. End quote. Notice that Reverend Ice has adopted the pop dispensational view of the return to earth of raptured saints. This means that they will be in their post-rapture, perfect, sin-free, pain-free, death-free bodies, impervious to physical or other attacks by covenant breakers or even demons. They will run the bureaucratic show then. This view has been rejected by the academic theologians of dispensationalism, but it has been widely accepted by laymen and their pastors. This is a major appeal factor of the pop dispensational movement, which is keeping the more academic version of dispensationalism afloat financially, which is why the seminary professors never publicly attack these paperback book theologians for having misled the public. This view of the millennium is the disp dispensationalist's equivalent of boys' comic book advertisements for Charles Atlas's dynamic tension, isometric, bodybuilding techniques, but without any sweat or pain. The 98-pound fundamentalist weaklings will at last get even with the 250-pound humanist bullies who had kicked so much sand in their faces during the church age. Once again, the issue is sanctions. Marx promised his readers that the currently expropriated will at last become the expropriators after the inevitable revolution. The same psychology of revenge is present in pop dispensationalism. The humanists and the pessimillennialists agree on an another point. God's kingdom is today exclusively internal, that is to say, culturally irrelevant. They all agree that time is not on the side of the church, meaning that there is not enough time for Christians to build a bottom-up, decentralized, biblical law-based, creedal, international, God-blessed social order. This means that they agree on this fundamental point. Continuity within history favors covenant-breakers and the kingdom of autonomous man. Conclusion Any millennial eschatology that proclaims the near-term return of Jesus Christ becomes a major ecclesiastical barrier to the development of Christian social theory. The supposed imminence of Jesus' physical return removes from God's people the crucial resource that they need to think about the future and plan for it, time. According to premillennial theologians, the looming eschatological discontinuity of Jesus' second coming works against the church long-term, and in favor of God's enemies, near-term. Therefore, for the Church to accomplish anything of significance in history, it must drastically limit its vision of what it can accomplish. It must plow shallow because there is not enough time to plow deep. Even so, they expect the Church to fail. Dispensationalists deeply, shallowly, resent anyone who calls them to plow both deeper and longer. Common grace amillennialists do not resent being called to plow deeper since they rejoice in deeply lost causes, 
They scoff, however, when they are told that Christians will finish plowing the field in history. The biblical view of history is that God, who providentially controls all events in terms of his decree, brings discontinuous negative historical sanctions against covenant-breaking societies. These discontinuities are the social foundation of the long-term victory of his kingdom in history. While these discontinuities can and do bring great pain and consternation to covenant keepers, they serve as the fire that burns off the dross of sin. Isaiah 1, 25-28 Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel all suffered during the period of the Babylonian captivity, but this discontinuity advanced the kingdom that was preached by all three of these prophets. Historical discontinuities are not threats against the long-term success of evangelism and social transformation. On the contrary, they are the basis of a positive, comprehensive, biblical, and continuous social transformation in history, Christian Reconstruction. The continuities of life favor covenant keepers. So do the discontinuities. Quote, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28 This means, of course, that all things work together for bad to them who hate God, and to them who are not called according to his purpose. Historical discontinuities must be seen as God's negative sanctions against evil-doing societies in history. They are his means of transferring the inheritance in history to his covenantal people. The problem comes when Christians deny the existence of God's predictable, biblical, law-governed, covenantal, corporate sanctions in history. Such a viewpoint explains God's historic corporate sanctions as random and inscrutable to man, even covenant-keeping man. The great historical discontinuities are not interpreted as advancing God's earthly kingdom. Therefore, by default, God's negative sanctions in history must be seen as working to advance Satan's earthly kingdom. There is no neutrality. Historic discontinuities are then viewed as mere reminders of the future cosmic discontinuity of Jesus' second coming. This future cosmic discontinuity is supposedly the only event that will enable God to bring his kingdom civilization to earth, but only after history ends. In short, God's civilization is defined as exclusively non-historical, while Satan's is exclusively historical. In conclusion, whenever God's historical covenantal sanctions are denied, history loses all meaning for covenant keepers. But there will always be discontinuities in history as God's kingdom advances. Thus, from a sanctions-denying perspective, history becomes a threat to Christians. This is exactly what has happened in our day. Here it is not primarily the the apocalyptic premillennialists who are at fault. Rather, it is the Calvinist amillennialists, as we shall see in the next chapter. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator 
or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.